Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Neshamas podcast. Today, we are honored to have Leah Groner. She is 27 and is a classroom and informal educator. She's from Melbourne, Australia, and is on her way to Israel, where she is completing her master's in Tanakh education. She's here to share her experience growing up with undiagnosed ADHD, the inner anger and frustration it caused her, only being diagnosed a year and a half ago when she began learning to accept, love, and trust herself again. Welcome, Leah. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. We appreciate you making the time. Leah's only in Crown Heights for a little bit, but she put aside time to record this podcast, and we thank you. You're very welcome. It's really an honor to be here. ADHD, it's such a, like so many people know about it. Heard those words. Maybe I'm ADHD, maybe I'm not. I know I for sure have some sort of idea of what it is. So instead of talking about what it is from a clinical perspective, I'd just love to hear your experience with it. So if you can just paint us a little bit of a picture of what it was like right before the first memory of having ADHD and what it was like in your life. And mm-hmm. So yeah. it's interesting for me. I was only diagnosed at age 26. I only started thinking that this is something I might have at age 25. So there's a big chunk of living where I went through life knowing that I functioned a little bit differently than everybody else, but not having a name or understanding of it beyond um, just lazy and inept and self-sabotaging and the list can go on. So all throughout life, I noticed that I did things differently. I couldn't necessarily do things in the typical way that other people were doing it. I definitely would joke about it when I was in high school. Oh, I have ADD, the way people joke about other mental illnesses based on a very flimsy understanding of what it is. So let's say like in high school, necessarily hyperactive, which is often people think ADHD, they think hyperactive. Just in general, often with females, hyperactivity isn't something that presents that's more with boys, especially young boys. But there were times when in school I couldn't sit in my seat and I would do very like benign things. I wouldn't be jumping off the wall, but I would just stand instead of sitting. This is in high school. Or I would, I had a whole array of like toys. I had like little slinkies. I had little balls that I would throw and catch, Play-Doh, things that I could do. I remember in year 12. And this is in class? This is in class. And And your teachers supported it? So I was very lucky that I had teachers that did support it. Not always. I had at one point a teacher who didn't like that I would sit twisted, but that was the only way I could ground Mm -hmm. myself and stay seated for so long. And he did not, like, he didn't let me sit like that. I did not learn in his class because I just, he made me sit front on and it just wasn't working for me. So overall I had teachers that were very accommodating. Like I remember when I was in, this is when I made the joke of like, oh, I'm ADD. When I was in 12th grade, I had seating at that point in school is quite fluid. But I needed to have my Malcolm Kavu. I had to have the same seat that I always sat in because it was perfect. It was the perfect angle to the teacher where I could twist around a bit and still have eye contact. It was next to a window. So often I would stand up and be fully engaged in the class, but be standing at the window and looking out. And and I I am lucky that teachers were accommodating. I'm also lucky that, thank God, I, on an intellectual and on an intellect level, I was able to keep up with classes. Teachers were more forgiving because they could tell that I still was on top of content, was still engaged in the classroom. I'd be standing by the window looking at the tree, but I would answer the question. Hmm. So they let me get away with it. So this was just, I just thought these were quirks. 
also in school there were a lot of other things going on. Like I always did my work last minute. If something bored me, I couldn't do it. If something I didn't feel passionate about, it was painful to do. But also, luckily, there were a lot of things in school that did interest me. I was learning. I love learning and I was learning things that interested me and I was involved in like extracurricular activities that interested me. So I did them, but there was always that little bit of chaos in how I did them. Last minute, yeah, just chaotically. And then leaving high school, the chaos intensified because I didn't have that like, at the end of the day, school is a structure and structure is helpful. And in school, you are responsible for things. You're responsible for showing up to class. You're responsible for listening to class. You're responsible for homework. But at the end of the day, it's school can be very passive. You're not responsible for major things. So once I left school, the chaos in my life definitely intensified. And at that point, I, it wasn't, I couldn't just pass it off as quirks anymore. I was like, okay, something's wrong with me. And that's when a lot of that inner anger and frustration started coming up. Hmm. Was there ever a teacher or educator any at any point sat down with you and say, hey, Leah, what's going on? And because if they were so accommodating, which is such a blessing, I would love to at some point like give them recognition because there's most teachers, at least growing up, wouldn't have the wouldn't know that's something to work with. So I'm wondering if anybody ever actually sat down with you and sit was seek to understand. That's an interesting question because I do give the teachers credit for being accommodating, but I don't think they were consciously accommodating. And I don't hold this against them. This is, I graduated school over over 10 years ago. ADHD wasn't as in vogue then as it Mm -hmm. is now. So I don't think they were consciously being accommodating. I think they were like, okay, Lei is a good student. She's interested in learning. She is still learning. So I'll let the fact that she's walking around the back of the classroom, throwing a ball in the air, I'll let that pass. And then the teachers who didn't know me that were the ones who were like, sit down. And I forgot that. Oh, so did anybody actually sit with me? No. And this is something that I, I have now moved past on, but there used to be a lot of pain and anger about why didn't anybody care or try? I mentioned that Baruch Hashem, I have been blessed with a strong intellect. Often in, in the school system, teachers will will sit down with the students that are weaker and falling behind. And I was able to keep up, so they didn't have a reason to follow up with me mm-hmm. until I hit year 12, 12th grade, year 12, and in Australia it's year 12. Mm-hmm. And just in brief, in Australia, the last two years of high school, you do something called VC or HSC, depending on which state you're in. And it's pretty much like similar to the first year or two of college when you're completing a bachelor's where you are learning material at a really high level. And the idea is, is that it's preparing you to enter into university pretty much straight after. And the workload in increases quite drastically. So the first time that my ADHD began to actually impact my schoolwork was when year 12 rolled around. Because up until then, even though I was, I didn't do my work in a methodical way, I did it last minute. I did it very rushed. I could pull through. When the workload intensified, plus mixed with, as I said earlier, it's very hard for me to do things that I don't believe in. And I value learning. I love learning 100%. And what I loved about VCE is that you choose the subjects. I chose subjects that I loved, but this isn't really relevant, but the whole way that the the marking system works with your VCE results, it's a game and it's a game that I didn't want to play. So that mixed with suddenly my ADHD mind couldn't cope with the intensified workload. That's the first time that my schoolwork ever got um, impacted. And pretty much what happened in year 12 was I attended every single class because I loved learning and I loved what I was learning. I was fully involved in the classroom, granted, maybe standing up, walking around, but fully involved, wrote notes. But outside of the classroom, I could not pick up a pen, which is like unheard of in Australia. Like year 12, you just do, you work, work. And teachers didn't pick up on it. They might've been like, why haven't you done your work? But then rolled their eyes and kept on going because they just thought I was being lazy because they knew that I was capable. Up until then, I had been capable. Mm-hmm. So they just wrote it off to, to laziness which I began to internalize as well. There was one teacher who sat down with me. I really loved her. She was a fantastic teacher and she tried helping me. And she actually, its her voice has been in my head for many years because she used to always say, what's wrong with you? Not in a mean way, but she just was trying to figure out like what was wrong with me. She had taught me since I was in year eight, I think. And she's like, you always did your work because she wasn't seeing 
She is trying to be a stand for what she believes that you are. Exactly. She had always seen me coming to class, mm-hmm. understanding the material, doing well, doing homework. She didn't know the whole backstory. And suddenly she sees me crumbling in year 12 and she had all these theories. She had, and those theories really stuck with me because it made me think well, maybe there's a theory to why I'm like this. It's not just laziness. She put forward theories that maybe I was young and immature. I did skip a year when I was very young. So I was finishing school like around a year and a half younger than my classmates, which also played in my brain. I was like, oh, I'm just immature. So besides for her, no one else really ever checked in, except when I was in seminary, the the chaos of my life became very strong. Suddenly I was out of the, I went to high school at home. So my general, I didn't have to be on top of taking care of myself. So in seminary, suddenly having to be in a classroom all day, plus be more responsible for my general well-being was a lot for me. And seminary was really difficult. My stuff was always a mess. I was missing a lot of classes, not being present in class, not writing notes. And the principal of my seminary actually pulled me aside and I was petrified because also I was, I felt even worse on myself because throughout high school, I had been able Despite the internal chaos, I had managed to always present as this functional top student. And suddenly in SEM, that was out the window. And it really hurt me that the people who only met me in seminary were seeing this, like what I thought, this damaged, lazy person. But she actually pulled me aside and I was ready to cop it from her. And I was sure she was going to tell me how terrible I was. But instead, she was the first person that asked, like, what's going on? How can I help you? I see that you want to be learning. I see that you genuinely care. I see that you're keyed in, but I also see that you're constantly missing classes coming late and those two don't compute. So obviously there's something more going on and how can I help you and how can I support you? And it was the first time that I ever felt like, oh, like maybe I'm not the problem. Like I am all those good things. And there's another force that's creating all that, but I didn't yet have the knowledge of that force was ADHD, but the first time to be seen by a, a teacher, an educator, and for her to acknowledge all the wonderful parts about me, but then also to acknowledge that there's something that's wreaking havoc in my life and how could she help was really, really nice and super surprising. Nothing major shifted from that, but it was a really soothing moment. Mm. Can you share with us what is the internal experience of sitting with a piece of work? knowing that this is something you need to do (laughs) and yeah what happens what happens if you can break it down okay it's not very pleasant very pretty um without downplaying it (laughs) okay yeah so let's so initially when a piece of work either in school or in life like a project comes your way there's always initial excitement because I don't know. Was this progressive, by the way? Was it, did it like get worse over the years? It definitely came out more because as I progressed through adulthood and more was expected of me, there were more areas in my life where chaos was was manifesting. And I also learned to overcorrect more and to mask more, but it definitely progressed in that way. Yeah. Right. So can you describe how it manifests itself while you were still in high school and you were still in that structure? So still in high school, it was very much So in the classroom, needing that little bit of extra stimulation to help me stay focused. Were you happy to get that extra stimulation? Did you feel embarrassed? What's wrong? So it was all, it was all happening from within myself without realizing it. Cause again, no one in high school would have looked at me and been like, oh, you have ADHD and let alone I never would have said that. So in high school, looking back, I see that I was finding things to give myself that extra stimulation, whether it was through like fidget toys or standing up, which really helped me. What was it like before you actually physically stood up? What is the feeling, the uncomfortable I feeling? would feel like I need to jump out of my skin. I would, I still sometimes get that feeling. I'm like, I need to take my skin off and hang it on the clothesline and let it air out for a bit and then I can put it on again. Also, there's a lot of other things that can cross over with ADHD. One of them is a sensory disorder, which that feeling of needing to jump out of my skin is a very sensory thing. Um, so sometimes that kind of feeling could get, brought on by actual tactile touching something or having something on my body or something. Oh, that's a relief. That's a relief? Like so it's it can be a few things. So like sometimes I can get that I need to jump out of my skin feeling because my physically my body is actually uncomfortable. So that could be 
my sock is annoying me. It could be like the clothes I'm wearing are too loose. It could be a very physical thing. Or that feeling of I need to jump out of my skin right now. My body's not happy can come from a more um, emotional, um, psychological thing of I now, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. Often in school, it would happen after lunchtime. It's 2.30 in the afternoon and I have to sit here for another hour and a half and I just don't want to. So my body wants to jump out of itself. It's I just don't want to or I can't even imagine doing that. It's Yeah, it's like I would sit and watch the clock and be like, I need to sit here for X amount more minutes. I'm just so uncomfortable. Uh, again, when I was in school, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have realized that at that moment when I was watching the clock, just wanting to jump out of my skin, I was experiencing that like fear of needing to focus, which is something that's really big with me. I just was like, help me. Yeah. Can you tell me more? Also, oh, if I go back to what happens when a task is given to me, what, what happens? Yeah. There's a lot of fear of anything that requires focus. My brain doesn't like to focus. So if it, if focus, my brain has two options. It either doesn't like to focus, it has more than two options, but in an extreme, it doesn't want to focus. So it will do anything it can to not focus, or it will hyper-focus on something. And that hyper-focus comes when there's something that I'm passionate about, something that I really care about, or something that I can envision doing mm. really well. So it's two sides of the same coin. Exactly. The problem is though, my hyper-focus in my brain of like ideally what something can look like, I don't necessarily have enough of actual focus of actual sustained focus to actualize that vision. Mm -hmm. So let's say if someone gives me a task, that kind of rose colored idealized part of my, my brain will, will spark and I will envision doing this project or task Perfectly. There's a lot of perfectionism that has come up for me of wanting to do this thing in the most perfect way because some way in some science circles, they'll, they describe the ADHD brain as supercharged almost. So because it's supercharged, I will imagine you give me a task. I will tell you how I can do that task, but better. And mm -hmm. genuinely, I can often think of ideas that will take it to the next level. So that's like the first kind of like honeymoon phase of task has been dispatched. My brain is imagining the best, most optimal, beautiful way of doing it. But it's still, let's say, a week out from the due date. So I spend like a day or two just in that glow of like mm. how beautifully I could do that task and how wonderful it's going to be when it's done. And that phase is really fun because my brain is just like enjoying it and basking in it. Then as we get three days or four days out from the deadline, is the part of the brain which is, okay, most normal people would start the task by now. So maybe you should think about starting it. If I would sit down four days out from the task and try to do it, it, it just, I will find any way to distract myself because mm -hmm. the need for focus isn't imminent. Something that ADHDers thrive off is a deadline. I think most people thrive off a deadline to an extent. It is extremely hard for me to do anything without a deadline. And until that deadline is like looming, I stay in that in that idealistic mindset of how I'm going to do said task. So it's very interesting because it's not like a task comes my way and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do it. A task comes my way and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it so well. But then when push comes to shove and I have to actually do it, pre-diagnosis, it would be me just like sitting and jailing myself essentially and being like, you can't go out until this is done. You can't do X until this is done. You must sit in front of your computer. You must stay in your house, whatever the task requires, but not actually doing anything. And I'm trying to explain how it feels in my brain. It's you need to do it. And that time is slipping away from you. But the thought of making my brain actually do it can sometimes be painful. It just doesn't want to. And sometimes that I don't want to is conscious and sometimes it's subconscious by finding every other thing that will give me instant satisfaction, spike the dopamine, because essentially the, the ADHD brain is lacking enough natural dopamine to pull yourself through and complete a task. So I start looking for other ways to get that dopamine fix. So I'll play Candy Crush. I'll start researching something else, which is totally not relevant, but I'll convince myself it's helping me. It's, it feels tangible. It feels it's, like you're 
Right. Exactly. I see the extreme. It actually makes me think of Ratzay and Shuv. This it talks about being aspiring and, and, mm-hmm. and wanting to cleave to imagination or to God. And the other one is returning and actually making it something physical or tangible. Exactly. Exactly. So I can see how on one hand having so much stimulation and then on the other hand just needing to take energy and put it into something physical that I could touch. Yeah. The other Hasidic concept that comes up a lot for me is Tikkun, the worlds of Tayo and the worlds of Tikkun, because the mm. worlds of Tayo is it's chaos. And yeah, chaos, masses of energy, and everything that exists in the world of Tikkun was in the world of Tayo, but it, it was chaotic. There was no structure. There was no system to it, and nothing practical could was was able to be achieved. And whereas in the world of Tikkun, there's the same spheres, the same emotional energy, but it's arranged in the system that we're familiar with of how the the spheres interact with each other, and as a result, at the end, our world came into existence. So, definitely, I lived in the world of Taihu for a very long time. And I think that's where a lot of that frustration and anger comes up, because I was constantly not hitting the mark, not getting done what I wanted to get done, or getting it done in the most chaotic, messy way. And I was haunted by those images of how I had imagined myself doing the task perfectly and beautifully. Mm. And there was so much anger because I just thought I was being lazy. And I just thought that I was constantly letting myself down. And what I know now is so vastly different from that. So yeah, it's just a lot of feeling of everyone in life needs to do things that they don't want to do. It's part of life. But what's tricky is, is that often these were things that, okay, sometimes it was things I didn't want to do and it's part of life. So there was that hurdle, but often it was things that I genuinely wanted to do, whether it was, a learning project, something for the place of, that I was working. It was things that I genuinely wanted to do. And that is what was so hard because my brain was like, yeah, I want this and I can do it so beautifully. Then a bigger part of my brain was just like, too much focus is needed. Too much steps is needed. This is hard. This is too big. Distract, distract. And chaos would essentially ensue. Mm-hmm. From when you were in seminary, what would be the next like significant moment, like the next milestone? Of yeah. me like realizing? Yeah. Or actually yeah. So f- from that conversation that you had with the principal yeah. of the seminary, what would be the next like milestone? Or did it just continue the way it was? Did anything come from that conversation? I think you said it didn't. Nothing came from it, but I felt less damaged. I felt like I wasn't a terrible, lazy person who was constantly missing opportunities and letting herself down. It made me realize that there's wonderful things about me too. And those, and that those things are real and genuine, even though I'm struggling in other areas. Right. Because it used to be that the the chaos and the places in which I was letting myself down with blackwash, I don't know if that's a word, but like kind of over overshadow everything else that was good that I was doing. So there's two fundamental things happening here. Like one is what's the actual, call it dysfunction, the actual or function of ADHD mm-hmm. and, and struggling with that and trying to learn and complete tasks. And then alongside it, there's this building of an identity exactly. right beside it, which that your principal really helped you with that. She laid like the the foundation of what later on I would discover exactly, but it was the first time I thought that maybe I'm not so terrible, and building an of an identity is a big part of what I went through up until I was diagnosed because there's the inner voice that you're telling yourself i I'm letting myself down, I'm inept, I'm dysfunctional, and that voice just builds and builds, and it also turns into protective me- mechanisms. You tell yourself that, oh, this is just my quirk, or this is just part of my personality. And I started creating a lot of, like in the years post-seminary, as I was finding my my footing, I would convince myself that I didn't want certain things because to follow through and have that sustained focus to actualize them was too hard. So I created these cognitive dissonance blocks of who I am based on what I had the ability to do at that time. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it was also something like 
If I'm not doing it and it's difficult for me, obviously it's not something I really want. Because if I really wanted it, then I would make sure it happens. Exactly. I Mm -hmm. would find other ways that I could convince myself that I was okay. And that, yeah, if I didn't actually do it, it obviously didn't have to get done. Or everyone else is doing X, but for me doing X is hard. So I don't, I'm not like everybody else. And that's not who I am. And I found a lot of ways to build this identity of who I thought that I was. And also I, at the same time as being very stuck and entrenched in that identity, at the same time, I always had a projected identity of which I wouldn't really share with anyone of like who I actually should be. And if I wasn't held back by all of this crap, um, I would be able to be that person. And some of those things are genuine things that I, I know that I want and I now am learning to actively pursue. But a lot of them were just projections based on me being so out of touch with who I actually was. When would you say, or how would you describe like the bottom before you were willing to get help? Or The bottom, there's still traces of the bottom in my life, but not as intensely. What actually happened that made me realize that this might be something is, so in the years between seminary and diagnosis, I basically lived either in Australia or New York, briefly Israel. I was mainly working within the education systems, mainly seminaries. I worked in New York and Lamplighters for quite a few years. And what always managed to pull me through, even though the chaos and dysfunction in my methods of living life and being an employer were quite unconventional and very much riddled with with my ADHD, I managed to pull through because the saving grace for someone with ADHD, or particularly me, is when you do work that you're passionate about or that you believe in and you're supported by good people, you can pull through. So even though you're limping through because you're still in that world of Tohu and things are still chaotic, you can pull through enough. So I'm very lucky that post-seminary pre-diagnosis, I mainly managed to find myself within institutions where I was doing work that I was passionate about and I was surrounded by good people. So, so that wasn't intentional? Um, doing work that I'm passionate about was intentional because A, I enjoy doing work that I'm passionate about mm. and I have always wanted to make that my main focus. Also, I did notice the pattern that when I was doing work that I wasn't passionate about, I hated every minute of it. There was a brief period of time in Melbourne where I took on a job as an assistant in a preschool and I was miserable, absolutely miserable. So I I did notice that when, and preschool teaching is fantastic. It's just not for me. So it wasn't necessarily intentional, but I was aware of it. And looking back now, and if I would assess the work that I was doing in these institutions where I was supported and I was passionate about, I was a decent employee, but I definitely had traces of my ADHD chaos present for sure. When when I really hit rock bottom was when I stopped working in Lamplighters, Yeshiva, and I had to find a job. And I thought it would be simple. I'll just do the steps. Again, that like honeymoon ideal part of my brain switched on and was like, it's easy. You sit down and you read online, the job's available. You do some networking. What's so hard about finding a job? And I realized that it's hard. You need to you need to follow through steps. If you want a decent job, it's a lot of steps and follow through, which was extremely difficult for me. I ended up taking on a job that I was doing admin work, which is really not my calling or something I'm passionate about. And it was in a school where I wasn't passionate about the school. I wasn't supported by the people around me and I was miserable, absolutely miserable. I was not hitting the marks as an employer as I had been in previous institutions that I worked at. And around that time is when I really hit rock bottom. And that was when I was living here in New York and my parents were in town. My brother had just gotten engaged and I said to my mother, I said, I'm the most inept and most capable person I know at the same time. 
And that pretty much just summed up how I felt because at work, and I just spent a period of time of being unemployed. I now starting a new job. I was hating it. I was not good at it. There were certain areas in my life that were constantly in chaos. My room was always a mess. Things to do with my personal self-management were always a mess. So I felt so inept in those areas. But at the same time, I was super capable. And I had been successful in my previous jobs. I was constantly hosting in my house in New York. I was involved in many wonderful organizations as a very active and vital member of those organizations within my family. At the time, my parents, as I said, were visiting New York. I was hosting them. I was cooking Shabbos meals. So I was so capable and so inept at the same time, essentially. And I said this to her, and I can still see it in, I can see it in my head. And she looked at me and she said, Leia, I think you have ADHD. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> but then I was like, wait, maybe you do. And maybe you should think more about this. Because at that moment, I didn't know anything about ADHD. I know, I knew my life and I knew that things weren't right. And after, at this point I was 25. So there is a point where you do stop blaming yourself constantly and you start to learn that this is not to excuse your behavior because we can always work on ourselves, but we start to realize that things that we may have just thought were quirks at a younger age, from 18 to 25, you start to see these things take shape and realize that it's more than just a quirk. So I definitely had been coming to those realizations, but I never would have been able to put a name on it if it wasn't for my mother looking at me and um, saying, I think this is what you're describing here. And she obviously knows me very well and she had seen me operating. Mm -hmm. So it, when I hit that rock bottom of just what do I do um, in, with my life, I felt like I just, if I didn't, if a breakthrough didn't happen, I felt like I would just be stuck where I was for the rest of my life. And at that point is when my mother correctly said, I think this is what it is. What did you take it from there? So straight away, I don't remember what I said back to her. I probably deflected. And I, I know I said, no, I don't. And that was definitely coming from a, a place of she had just put this big word in front of me and I didn't even know what it meant. Mm -hmm. So she, I mean, she didn't push it any further and she gave me the time to do my own research, which I really appreciate. And I started Googling. I did a simple Google search and I marvel now at how like these terms get thrown around and we use them so comfortably as jokes, as colloquialisms, but we don't actually know what they are. And I sat down and I Googled ADHD in adults and I read one kind of checklist of how it presents in adults. And I was like, oh, that's me. And I started doing a lot of, I say a lot of reading, more like skimming, something that for me, I struggle a lot with it because of my ADHD is I'm not very good at reading. So I, um, I skimmed a lot of articles and I realized that this was definitely something that sound that fits, that explains a lot, that made me feel seen and comfortable within myself for the first time in a very long time. I spoke to people. I didn't use the term I have ADHD because I didn't have a diagnosis and I didn't know, but I started saying I have trouble focusing because when you're letting people down constantly and they're upset at you and you don't know what, like just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it <laughs> necessarily. So I started using that kind of language. I met someone who told me about her um, being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult and she was super successful and really fantastic and that was really comforting for me so over the next few months I didn't take the next step at the time I was living in I was living in Crown Heights and I didn't really have a medical support system here that I felt comfortable to be like help me out what do I do so for that it was pretty much a year I, nothing crazy externally happened, but internally I was reading a lot and doing a lot of my own research. And the biggest thing that kind of happened in that year is that a lot of that anger and resentment I had built up towards myself started to fall away. And I started to realize that I am a very capable and talented and great person. Mm. And I also have this other force that is holding me back and it's not me 
being all these terrible things I used to tell myself. So that was the biggest kind of breakthrough that year. I didn't do, I didn't do anything major because I didn't feel equipped to do it here. Even though I'm sure there's wonderful mental health professionals that can help you in Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. As someone who's not from here, I felt a little, also again, like the follow through required and getting the help felt beyond me at that point. So I just did a lot of my own research and that was really comforting, super, super comforting. And it really actually put me in the perfect position to start working professionally with, with mental health professionals on actually workshopping and working through my ADHD. I do wonder, it seems clear to me, but I'm wondering if this mm-hmm. is your experience is that there's something seriously wrong with me and the frustration. I get angry at myself. And as long as there's something wrong with me and I'm angry at myself, I'm not lovable. I can't love myself like this. And then through learning about yourself, through learning about ADHD, having some self-compassion and self-acceptance is able to create like what we said in the beginning of how I introduced you, the idea of being able to love yourself again. I definitely... It's interesting because I didn't necessarily struggle with self-esteem issues, which mm-hmm. often w- would come up. But Hashem, I've always managed to have a healthy level of self-confidence, self-esteem, and self-love. Like I would genuinely be proud of things that I had done, even when it was tinged with that, um, with that shame of how said project had come together. Meaning not living up to the expectations that yeah, you had and the visions yeah, you had. Yeah, like I would execute a project beautifully and be proud of it, but also feel shame that I did it staying up till 4 a.m. the night before mm-hmm. or whatever it meant. But I did definitely sometimes feel like a phony. I sometimes definitely felt like, I actually had a friend who, who said, she said there's two layers. There's layer and then there's lump layer. That's how she called it. And I was, and when she said that, I was like, yeah, that's right. That's what there is because she had been staying at my house in New York and she had been watching me as I came home from work. It was Tuesday and I came home from work and I was like a lump on the couch for two and a half hours. I didn't make myself dinner. I didn't do anything that I had to do, laundry. There's always things that I should have been doing. Instead, I lumped on the couch for two and a half hours. And then I was scheduled to give a shear at, let's say, eight o'clock. I can't remember what time. 20 minutes before the shear, I stood up, got dressed, read through the material, and went to give the class. And she came. And then I started giving the shear, and suddenly I was alive and animated and articulate and teaching. It was a concept I was very familiar with before, hence I could just glance over things in five, 10 minutes and give the shear. And she was watching and she was just like, what just happened? She's like, you transformed. She said, what happened to lump Leia? And that very much is a characterization of how my life was lived. There were two layers. There was that lump Leia and the capable, in her element, fantastic, functional Leia. And it's ironic that we're using the terms Leia because it's my name, but there's actually a fantastic mimer from the Alter Rebbe, which changed my life, where he speaks about Rachel and Leia as being characterizations of exactly what I just said, of Rachel is that external part of ourselves who's bright and shiny and easily interacts with other people and is pretty much the projections of who we say we are. And that's a wonderful part of ourselves. But then there's the element of Leia, which is the subconscious, the part of ourselves that holds the not yet perfected elements and the things that we need to grapple with in order to become the fully whole people that we're meant to be. And the Alter speaks about how Yaakov was obviously drawn to the Rachel because we're all drawn to those parts of ourselves. Those are the parts of ourselves if we had to describe ourselves in five words. We describe that part. Mm-hmm. And Yaakov he wanted to engage in that part, the layer part. It's not fun. It's unattractive. It's intense. It's messy. It's hard to understand. And we fear what we don't understand. So hence Hashem had to trick Yaakov into marrying Leah because actively we don't want to engage with that part of ourselves. And because if Yaakov wanted to reach his ultimate fulfillment and become the father of the Shvatim, he had to engage with the Leah as well. Right. And 
especially since Yaakov is compassion. Exactly. Yeah. And that's very much how I lived my life. I had the layer part of me, which was that messy, frustrated anger, letting myself down, but I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want to peek back and see I what it was. definitely didn't want anybody to see it. Exactly. One of the great, greatest ways I can give you a visual of it is that I would host a lot in my time in New York, and that's when my Rachel side would come out. I was a capable, perfect hostess. My house would look beautiful. My roommate and I would create this open, warm environment. Everybody loved coming to our house. The food would be perfect. Everything would be perfect. And then often, let's say it's a Shabbos afternoon or it's sometime during the week, my friend would be like, can I just put this in your room? I just don't want it like out here. She had either a bag or a jacket. And I'd be like, no, you can't go in my room. She's like, why? And if it was a good friend, I would be like, fine, I'll show you. And I would open the door to my room and my room would be junk, mess everywhere. So, And they would be shocked because in the rest of my apartment, everything was pristine and perfect because mm-hmm. I was hosting. So I could facilitate that for the purpose of whatever it was that I was hosting. But my own internal little world was a mess and chaos. And that's pretty much. So going back to whether I loved myself, I did. The parts of me that would show up as this capable, functional person, I genuinely was proud of that person. And I had self-confidence and self-esteem. But that other darker, shadowy part of myself that I hadn't dealt with yet, there was a lot of, yeah, a lot of shame a lot of sadness, all those sorts of things. And what I've learned now is that if we want to become our ultimate selves and really love and value ourselves wholly as people, you need to engage with both. Mm -hmm. So where did that begin? So it did begin when my mother put forward that I might have Mm -hmm. ADHD. So that year was, I have a friend who always says, naming it is taming it Mm -hmm. and that when you name something, it's not that scary mess of energy that you don't want to go near. And by putting a label to this force in my life, this way of being is ADHD. Already there was less anger, less resentment. Nothing changed on an actual level. I was still living dysfunctionally and chaotically. I guess the third element about it was less, right? Because there could be feeling chaotic and Mm -hmm. then feeling put together. Mm -hmm. And then the third part is the frustration of that. Yeah. So you're saying the the first year you were able to really do a lot of work that created peace and and removed a lot of the frustration. I thought at the time I was doing that in comparison to where I am now post doing a year of therapy and working with actual professionals. It was just... A, a percent of the work that actually had to be done, but mm-hmm. it was the beginning. I still had a lot of anxiety. Anxiety doesn't always come with ADHD, but it often does. Again, like that turbocharged brain. So often a, a big part of um, anxiety for me, my particular anxieties that I had was catastrophizing anything, being afraid of all sorts of eventual outcomes. That was still rife in my life. Yeah, it it still was very present, but there was that little bit more of kindness and self-compassion. What was the work? So what was the work? It's a good question. For everyone, again, that would be different. And also because of what happened in the world the past year and a half, I had a unique opportunity to work on my ADHD kind of in a bubble, not entirely, but in some ways. I don't know what it would have looked like if I had kept living my life in New York and tried to work on my ADHD in that mode. What ended up happening with me is that I, I, as I said, I have a lot of anxiety. And when the pandemic hit last year, it was probably actually the first time in my life that I didn't get fixated on the projective, projected side of me and who I thought I should be. I actually listened to who I am, what my body was telling me and what the actual capacity I had was at the time. And I realized that I had to go home and I had the conversation in my head, but everybody else is fine and everybody else is managing to handle the pandemic being far from their family in Australia, wherever it might be. But I realized that my capacity and based on who I am and how I function in this world, I need, it, I need to be home. That sounds like self-trust. 
Yeah. And it's, it was new for me. It was very new for me. And it was something that I actually had a lot, even when I was actively going home, I had a lot of resistance to it and a lot of like, why are you leaving? Your friends are here. Your life is here. Mm -hmm. But it was the beginning of me learning to trust myself and what I actually am capable of in, in, in that moment. So I left New York and I ended up back in Melbourne for, I told myself it was going to be three months because again, I had this projected image of how my life needed to be. And I was like, three months should be enough time to deal with this. I'll fix this. And then I'll go back to my life in New York. That's not how it played out at all. I ended up being home for 16 months, but it was honestly the, such a gift and I am grateful that I was able to work on these things in a bubble. You don't need to have a bubble to work on your mental health. You can do it at any point. In my case, it was helpful. When I came home and I was in Melbourne, I now had the medical support and I knew that this was my opportunity to really work on this. And again, it was hard doing something new and that I haven't done before is really hard for me. Growing up, I used to always tell people when they were like telling me tasks, I'm like, pretend I'm a golem break it down. Tell me every little bit of what needs to happen. Because mm. just telling me to make a cake, I don't know what you want from me. Tell me every little bit. So initially I was home and I didn't really do anything at all. I was overwhelmed by the the task of treat, diagnose, get a diagnosis, then deal with said ADHD. I'm very appreciative for the support of my family. I mentioned to a few of my friends that I'm looking to get uh, an official ADHD diagnosis because I was at that time I still was like this could all just be a fantasy this could just be me, me looking for an easy way out this could be me just looking for mm. an excuses I very much still had that playing in my brain and I spoke to a few of my friends in Australia and they laughed at me and they were like you don't have ADHD you're so capable you're so this exactly it doesn't add up and there very much was that part of me which was like okay like maybe it's my it's just my laziness but thank God, as I said, my family is extremely supportive when it comes to mental health. And also the Australian healthcare system is quite easy to navigate, which is someone who is afraid of doing things they haven't done before. I'm also quite grateful for. And I just started by booking an appointment with my GP, my doctor. And I told her, I think I have ADHD. What do I do? And she asked me a few questions and she was extremely encouraging and supportive, which straight away counteracted those voices that I had heard from people being like, it's just excuses. It's just laziness. You mm -hmm. couldn't have ADHD. So mm -hmm. that's why I always tell people like seek professional help because they actually know. And it was really encouraging. Mm -hmm. And she tried, she's like, okay, the next step is to get a diagnosis from a psychiatrist and to work with a psychologist. And that is, that's essentially what I did. It was very hard to get appointments. The definitely due to COVID mental health professionals are in high demand which is, I actually was the soonest, this was in, I think this was in May or June. And the soonest appointment I could get was July 31st, which turned out to be Tishabov. But I, Shaila, I was like, can I take this appointment on Tishabov? And it's not ideal, but I really needed this appointment. So mm -hmm. I went on Tishabov and a week before I started seeing a psychologist. So in my case, my GP, my, I don't know what, what you call it here. I guess general practice. The general protection, yeah. yeah. So she was the one who set me up with both the psychiatrist and the psychologist and did all the referrals and all the paperwork and really held my hand throughout the process, which mm. I'm so grateful for because it's a lot of steps to it, which is, I don't like multi-step processes. So I was very appreciative of her help. And she set me up with the psychiatrist and the psychologist. The psychiatrist had his way. He asked me a lot of questions, a lot of um, specific questions. I know that I know from experience of other people I know who have ADHD that their diagnosis, the process looked a little different. So that can vary psychi psychiatrist to psychiatrist or however it's working. But he gave me the official diagnosis, which was actually was ironic that it was Tisha Bov because I always thought that when I would get the official di diagnosis, I would be happy. And I actually was, I was actually devastated. And I later on found out that's quite normal, that there's like a grieving process that comes with realizing that as much as I wanted it to be ADHD, as much as I wanted an explanation of who I was so I can help who I am, there's also a part of me that was wanted it just to be laziness because 
laziness I can work through, but something that's real, that is a physiological part of how my brain works, that's quite intense. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely a, there definitely was a relief hearing the diagnosis, but there also was a lot of sadness. Not only that, okay, this is now it forever, but um, also sadness, a lot of sadness about how my life could have looked if I was diagnosed earlier. Mm, Um, At this point, I was 26. And Mm. when ADHD really started manifesting in ugly ways in my life, I was 16. So that was a decade of me struggling. And I think it's very normal to, and I needed to grieve and, and feel those feelings. And I'm glad that I, I got help when I did. And it's also normal to be upset about the time wasted, essentially, the time lost. Yeah, I'm just going to mention this. Like, we're doing this interview because I had reached out to social media on my account and asked if anybody is able to share their story. And I think every person that reached out that uh, volunteered, whether they were ready to share live or, or not, were all diagnosed in in their 20s or 30s, and some even later. Yeah. So what was the work? So the way my psychologist put, put it is this bottom up and top down. There's two ways we approach it. One way is uh, medication. ADHD is not always, but usually caused by a deficiency in the brain, a dopamine, a dopamine deficiency. So we have medication, which is acts as a stimulant to help my brain create more dopamine. So that's one approach. And some people, that's the only approach. They just take the medication and that works for them. I was very hesitant to taking medication, extremely hesitant. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was cheating. Mm -hmm. I felt like taking medication was changing who I was. As I said, I did have a strong sense of self. And I was scared that taking medication would change who I am. And then Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be me. And even though up until that point, everything I had achieved had literally come through blood, sweat, and tears, I was used to that. And the thought of achieving things without that struggle, that's not me. And I was very- authentic. Exactly. And I was very afraid of letting go of all of those toxic habits that essentially had become who I was. I also was very scared of becoming dependent on something in general. I'm very scared of dependencies. People with ADHD can be prone to addiction, and Mm -hmm. I'm very aware of that. And as a result, I have created very strict boundaries with myself. I never let myself even experiment or dabble in any sort of recreational drugs because I know that I have that sort of sort of personality. And so coming from that angle, I was like, I don't want to become dependent on anything. Also coming from a less, coming more from a misconception within myself that I still need to work through is that I'm very bad at asking for help. A lot of that came because all throughout my life I was living in chaos and even though I was achieving and successful I was doing it in non-traditional ways I became very good at just being self-reliant I didn't know how to ask for help I didn't I didn't know how to work in partnership with anybody else because the ways that I worked weren't typical and I was ashamed and afraid to share that mm. also I did it to your apartment like Come, I'll show you this. I can work with you here, but exactly. don't come into my room. And I didn't want people looking at those parts of me and telling me that they were bad or wrong. So I essentially became an island and I would just do things my way. Mm-hmm. So I was afraid of any sort of help. And I was, I didn't enjoy being on my island, but it was my island. I knew it. And suddenly that medication was this foreign thing coming in. So I was very resistant to it. The first time I actually took I I was prescribed Ritalin. The first time I actually took the medication, I was petrified. This was a good couple of weeks post. Like I got the script until I filled the script, until I actually popped that first pill in my mouth. It was probably six weeks because I was so afraid. I only had the, the, the guts to finally take the medication because of the work I was doing with my psychologist. So the other approach, which is, working with a mental health professional to help because ADHD is every, in every single person, it presents differently. There are many people in my life very close to me with ADHD and some things we can all relate to and some things are vastly different person to person. Mm -hmm. And also 
the strategies of what's going to work for you is going to vary person to person. So having a psychologist who can help you, or what my psychologist, she A, helped me work through all those, all the emotional baggage I had of being an adult with this force in my life for so many years. She really helped me come to a healthy place of acceptance and understanding it. And through the process, take that layer element of myself because well, the Alta Rebbe says, to reference back to that, Maimer, he says that the goal isn't to turn that layer, that dark, enigmatic force, and turn it into Rachel. The purpose is to refine that and make that something functional and beautiful. And that's why for years when I was struggling with my ADHD symptoms, I would try to mimic the behaviors of my friends who were more neurotypical, let's say. So mm-hmm. I remember asking one friend, I was like, how do you do it? How do you do your homework? What do you do? She's, I just come home and I sit down and I do it. She's like, just do that. And I was like, what? And I tried, but obviously I couldn't. And for all the years that I didn't know what was going on with my ADHD, I stopped trusting myself and my natural abilities. If you read a lot of ADHD literature and you look at all the little infographics that pop up in Instagram, a lot of them will say ADHD comes with superpowers. And what they mean is that because your brain is functioning differently, it's a different operating system. There are other things that you might be stronger at than someone who has a neurotypical brain. But because we, a lot of us who may have those superpowers, but we're also struggling so much, we mute those powers and try to become like everybody else because we think Mm -hmm. that's the path to success. So I used to also like, I I mentioned that I couldn't trust myself. I couldn't trust my way of being because those superpowers that I had were, what's the word? They were surrounded by chaos and working with a, a trained professional to develop strategies that helped mitigate and lessen the chaos helped me be able to access the strengths that ADHD gave me and to access my innate positive qualities and to be able to work in the way that works best for me, but that is also functional and also regulated. Mm -hmm. And that is why I found it so helpful because the answer isn't just to do it like the way other people do it. It's to do it the way you do it based on your ADHD operating system, but to do it functionally and to have the medication there to help you, to have strategies there to help you. So I spent a year in therapy with a fantastic psychologist. As I said, I'm very grateful. I know that's not the normal, it's not usual that the world is on pause. And I was, when I first came back to Melbourne, I wasn't working. I did start working halfway through. And I'm also very aware that I'm lucky that I was in a place like Australia where most of my mental health, pretty much all of it was covered by the government, which is, again, so I know that not everyone has that ability, but even just having a few sessions to work with an ADHD coach or someone who was trained in this area and can help you decipher who you are and what works best for you and to implement strategies that will help you because there are going to be things that are always going to be hard for you. When I first started taking medication, I remember just thinking, this is how normal people feel. This is what a normal brain feels like. And I just, I was in shock at how easy it was to do certain things that were hard for me. Um, The way my medication works and each one is different is that a lot of that feeling did, it starts to wane, which is you you need to adjust dosages and et cetera. And now I'm at a very good point with the medication, but uh, there was a point around six months ago. So I was like six months into dealing with all of this where I said to my psychologist, I'm like, I think I've had enough. Like I'm ready to swap my brain in. Like this has been fun. I have the superpowers. It's cool. But I just want a normal brain. So it's obviously that's not possible, but it's, it is draining, but it is also so, it's so worth it. And things are still hard for me. I still don't operate the way a typical adult is meant to operate, but I've learned to be so accepting of these parts of me. Um, not excusing behavior, not letting myself off the hook, but accepting that the way it's going to take me to get something done is different than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And 
it takes so much of the previous anger and resentment that I had towards myself. It's just not there. So on the surface, sometimes it may look like I'm still being that 18-year-old me. For the most part, a lot of the chaos is gone, but a lot of the doing things in a unique way are still there because that is still who I am. It didn't metamorphosize overnight to someone who's neurotypical. So I still do things in my interesting way. I still might only start a project two days before, but that's better than two hours before. Mm-hmm. I probably will never work a nine to five job. It just doesn't suit me. And yeah, I've just really learned to observe myself, understand what's happening instead of running away from it, being afraid of it, to engage with it and to workshop it and to make it something that works for me. All right. So you don't need to take an extreme approach of going super focused into something or what do you mean? Like in the beginning, you described like when you were presented with an idea, you would either run away from it mm-hmm. or go super deep into it mm-hmm. and then get lost in there and then have a hard time to manifest it. Is there like so that still happens, but I'm able to recognize that it's happening, which allows yeah. you to have a balance, allows you to find a middle ground, exactly, even though it may lean towards a certain way, but it doesn't have to go to the extreme, exactly, you know, exactly. And it's So a lot of those things are still there because my brain's instinct, natural way of being is still to do that, that um, super focus, what's it called? No, hyper focus, Mm -hmm. deep dive into something. But now I'm able to rein it in after a day or two and be Mm -hmm. like, okay, what's the game plan going to be to actually get this project done? It might not mean starting it a week out like some people do, but yeah, it will mean starting it two days out. And you actually just gave me a picture of a kid who goes to an amusement park and they're young enough. To not realize that at the end of the day, they need to come home. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So they're going and they're having the rides. And as soon as you say, okay, it's time to go. And they're like, what? Yeah. Um, so that, uh, so I mentioned earlier, the learning to trust myself again, that's where it came into. Because it used to be the ADHD was impacting my life negatively. So I wanted to run away from who, from who I naturally am. And who I naturally am is a person with ADHD. That's what my brain is. And I used to try and overcorrect and become that person over there who does their work instantly and whose room is always neat or whatever it was at the time Mm -hmm. that I really wanted to achieve in my life. And I would overcorrect in crazy ways by I was obsessed with writing lists with stationery that would make me organized. I have in my room in Australia, I think five whiteboards that I was like, this whiteboard, this kind of planner is going to be the key to becoming organized. Mm -hmm. I had to write things down compulsively. And I thought that those things would be the key to unlocking who I was meant to be and being a functional person. And learning to trust myself again was realizing that I now have been equipped with the strategies that I need to not spiral out of control. And I don't need to constantly be essentially like when I would run to those planners and those whiteboards and those list making systems, I was essentially stunting the natural flow of who I am. And I now have learned to trust myself. I still write things down here and there, but overall I've allowed, because I have been equipped with medication and I've been equipped with strategies and I've been equipped with this understanding of what is actually happening within me, I'm a, I can give permission for my ADHD brain to flow through me mm. and for it to not be toihu and not be chaotic and actually be functional. I really appreciate this. I got to learn a lot. Is there any way that you can be supportive? If somebody has some questions, can they reach out to you? A hundred percent. Yeah. I will say a disclaimer. Yeah. One of the ways that my ADHD is manifest is that I am not a good virtual communicator. I am not the best at answering messages in a timely fashion, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to interact with people. I just love face-to-face communication best, which I know isn't always possible, but I'm definitely happy for people to reach out to me. I, this year I went back to teaching in the high school that I went to, which overall was a positive experience, but it definitely was interesting stepping back into that place where my ADHD was first manifest and Mm. ignored. And I, it just made me realize so much that if I can help in any capacity, a person who is that 16 year old me or that 20 year old me or whichever point you are in life, 
to figure this all out earlier and to save yourself that anguish and heartbreak and pain, I am happy to help in any way. And also on the flip side, if you are an educator and you have student, a student who just can't seem to hack, who seems so keyed in to the lessons but doesn't do her homework, there could be something more going on there than just laziness. And I'm also happy to talk about that. And I actually am really grateful that while being a teacher back in my old school in Melbourne and we would have staff meetings, I was able to to share the other side of the story and to put out there what how they were talking about we were having a discussion about what commitment looks like in students. So they were saying commitment is a student that shows up on time. Commitment is a student who always has the supplies she needs. Commitment is someone who always completes their homework. And I put forward that commitment, a student can be extremely committed or a child that you have can want to do the right thing. But the fact that their room is constantly a mess is because they're struggling with something deeper. Mm -hmm. So I'm always happy to share my thoughts and feelings and experience with others. For that, we thank you for sharing that with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for, for providing this platform. It's honestly incredible. And yeah, I, I can imagine that if 10 years ago I had heard something like this, it could have been quite eye-opening for me. So thank you for, for providing this as a, an integral needed service for our community. You're very welcome. And on behalf of all of us, whoever's listening to this and us and Ashamas in the community, we wish you Hatzlacha on your trip. And thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at nashamas.org. We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Nashamas podcast. This is Moshe Khanen wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.